This is Real World Product Management. Today's episode of a Product Management Podcast is about a day in the life of a product. Not product manager, a product. But I'm going to take you on the journey from the idea, or actually a bunch of ideas, to a single product that was taken to the market. First of all, let's look at the product context. Let's look at what is it that makes it a product in the context of this particular industry and a product manager's scope of responsibilities. This particular product was built for a wireless industry a few years ago. Um, for those who aren't familiar with uh, wireless industry, this is the slide. Uh, you have your regular United States carriers, your AT&T, T-Mobile, Verizon, or whoever else uh, was there at the time. They provide uh, services, obviously, the cell phone services. They also dictate what kind of phones can be used and uh, the procedures and how to activate the phones, how to which plans to use uh, to owners of wireless stores. The owner of wireless stores can operate anywhere from one to a hundred different uh, wireless shops or stores where uh, smartphones are usually sold, where you can buy a phone, upgrade a plan, or sign up a new plan, add a line, and so on and so on. There are also warehouses. They may or may not be associated with um, the companies that own wireless stores. Uh, in either case, a wireless store owner pays the warehouse to ship the equipment, to ship the phones and accessories to the stores. As customer goes into the store and buys a phone or upgrades the line or adds a new line or buys a brand new service, that earns the store owner a commission. That's, that commission is, in most cases, the only, uh, the only income or most of the income that wireless store owner uh, has. The uh, income that comes from operating the shop, the uh, wireless store, is insignificant compared to the commissions. They still earn uh, some kind of revenue based on sales of the accessories. However, sale of the phone usually does not bring in as much money as commission paid by the carrier to the wireless store owner for the purchase of the phone or a purchase of the new activation of a new line or upgrade of the existing line. That's pretty much as much as you need to know about this industry, uh, as much as you need to know about the context to understand what the products and ideas were at the time and to kind of take get on with this journey. Additionally, uh, when I look at um, parties that are involved, as I said, there's carrier, there's wireless store owner, the warehouses, and the actual stores, plus the customers who are buying this. Uh, interesting thing is this industry is, is the business with a small margin. What this means is uh, there's really little revenue uh, generated by selling the phones or upgrading uh, lines or any of the activities. So as the business with thin um, operating margin, uh, these, the, uh, these businesses, the store, uh, store operators, are really price sensitive. You can't really say, hey, here's another product that costs $10,000, buy it, and everybody jumps and buys it. Uh, it goes down to the point that people uh, switch vendors, switch software vendors, if they see $5, $10 difference a month uh, for a subscription price. 
about 60% of this market is operated by mom and pop shops. Uh, what this means is about 60% of the market owned by store individual stores from one to three stores, uh, businesses that operate no more than four stores. That's about 60% of the market. On the other side of the spectrum, about 20, 25% of the market are large companies that own hundreds of stores. It's kind of your premium segment. Those companies can afford expensive tools. Those companies can afford expensive products. Problem is, there's only 20 to 25% of the market operating uh, with the, operated by those companies. That's uh, most of what you need to know or all of that you need to know in regards to the uh, business side of uh, this industry. So let's move on to what is product manager does. What is a product manager's responsibilities in scope of this particular um, product? What we're going to talk about is someone who is operating their product as a business, the person who's responsible for all aspects of product success. In a way, although this uh, term is somewhat frowned upon, a product manager is a mini CEO. He drives every aspect of the product, yet he does not get the CEO compensation. As you can imagine, product managers involved in all sides of uh, product from idea to development to taking it to the market, supporting, interacting with customers, marketing, finance, legal, you name it. With that said, let's embark on this journey. Let's look at this uh, journey of a bunch of ideas, most of them dead, to individual product, to a single product that went to the market. First and foremost, what is the idea of funnel? Obviously, you need to have a funnel, same as a sales funnel, if you will where you have a bunch of ideas, you sort through them, you make sure that you pick only the right ideas and you get rid of uh, wrong, bad, uh, dead-in-the-water ideas really quickly. In our case, in the case of this particular product, we started with about 35 ideas that we together generated that were addressing about 114 customers' requests. And by customer requests, I mean our sales uh, people went, met with clients or had uh, extensive conversations over the phone and they collected all the asks, all the ideas, all the requests in a pretty neat Excel spreadsheet. So everything was documented. Everything was prioritized. Five people wanted this. Ten people wanted that. hundred companies asked for this. It was a pretty robust list of, as I said, about 114 customer requests. As we sorted and sifted through this list, we ended up with about 25 hot asks that generated about five prototypes. And those five prototypes eventually generated a single product addressing three high value points that we took to the market. So where ideas come from? Since ideation is your period where a product manager goes and talks to a bunch of people, ideas can come from anyone. Ideas can come from CEO, CIO, sales, support, um, even marketing. The problem with uh, CEO and CIO, they have way more weight to throw behind their ideas. So they tend to say, hey, let's do this because I think it's a great idea. Guess what? Not always. Not always CIO's idea or CEO's idea are the best. In many cases, their idea is only loud because it's the loudest person in the room being the C-level executive. So this is where product manager comes in and tries to do their due diligence. This is where product manager 
irresponsibility comes in uh, where he says, you know what, let us collect all these ideas, let us go through them, analyze them, and see which one hold water, which ideas actually make sense, versus the ideas that just look cool, sound cool, but not feasible, either from the market standpoint, from um, implementation standpoint, or just simply not interesting to the customer and are a solution looking for a problem. So what happens on the ideation stage? What happens at the stage where you generate all these ideas and everybody's excited and CEO runs around and asks, so when are we getting, when are we doing this? When can I look at this and see if it's done? At this point, you ask yourself and you ask customers and you ask your, uh, your subject matter experts, would the actual customers be interested in doing these ideas? Would it actually solve a real pain point for a customer? What does customer think about this idea? You can even mock up uh, we call it a fake demo. So you mock up a demo. When In the demo, you mock up a data or you mock up certain functionality, but you show something live. At the idea stage, you can throw together a workflow or a couple of screenshots and you show the customer, hey, Mr. Customer, this is approximately what it would look like. Does it make sense to you or not really? You can discuss raw ideas with the customer so you can prepare a serious pitch as long as customer understands what you're talking about, they should be able to understand and provide the feedback. So how did it work in the real life? Uh, we had an idea for a brand new messenger for alerts and updates. Uh, so we approached the customer and asked them, hey, would you be interested in getting these uh, dedicated messenger that would not be uh, would not distract you from, uh, with messages from your relatives, would not distract you from anything else, you will only get uh, alerts and updates about specific transactions. For example, if customers come, if customer comes back to the store and tries to return their phone, it's a big deal for a store, so a manager needs to be notified. If a customer comes back and wants to upgrade the phone to, but downgrade the line, it's a big deal for a store, manager needs to be notified. If the store is running on a really popular phone, store manager needs to be notified. Maybe somebody, somebody above the store manager needs to be notified so they can approve uh, additional inventory purchase. All these things uh, need to happen in near real time. And we thought it would be a good idea to keep customer in the loop. Their response, hell no. We're being bombarded by text messages from our relatives, uh, Facebook Messenger uh, from uh, friends. Uh, Viber, uh, WhatsApp, a bunch of others, and you guys want us uh, want to give us another messenger? Please don't. So obviously, after talking to a couple of customers, this idea was dead in the water. Uh, again, this was mostly targeted to companies that owned uh, hundreds, tens, and uh, tens and hundreds of stores. Therefore, very limited amount of customers would be interested in in um, that service. Obviously, if just a few of them thought it was incredibly bad idea. We didn't expect um, others to say, yeah, it's great, give, give us more messages. Next idea that we did a bit of a research, nowhere near prototype, just, just kind of did our homework, was real-time emotional uh, voice sentiment analysis. Kind of put microphone right next to the point of sale and try to analyze what the customer thinks what, based on the uh, tone of the conversation that they had. Obviously, it didn't work out uh, because... Uh, these stores are notoriously noisy environments, 
it would be very hard to capture a specific customer's voice. Customers tend to roam around the store, trying different phones as they interact with the salesperson. So the idea was dead in the water because we could never guarantee that we're going to capture long enough conversation to assess the sentiment. Another great idea that we thought we had was inventory trends. Um, obviously, Apple, Samsung, other uh, companies uh, release their phones at a specific time. Uh, different models come out in different quarters. Flagship phones always come out close to the end of the year to pad uh, companies' bottom lines. Uh, so there's a certain seasonality to the data, and we thought we could analyze that. Apparently, it was way too hard to analyze uh, from a developer point of view. We didn't have enough resources. We didn't have enough um, data and we company were wasn't that invested into this idea so the idea of uh, analyzing and providing insights into the inventory trends sort of died out next cool idea on the on our list was employee schedule in this industry who processed the transaction matters because the sales salespeople in the store are also commission based so if uh, john doe sells the phone to a customer John Doe earned the dollar. If he upgraded the customer to a more expensive plan, he earned $5. This needs to be recorded with, together with the transaction as it happens. There's also a um, certain level of fraud going on when people log transactions outside of their working hours. And people forget to log out of the transaction or log out of their workstation and somebody else may process transaction erroneously and it gets attributed to somebody else. So, the idea of implementing an employee schedule uh, was floated around. Uh, hey, if this guy is only in the store from five to nine or from nine to five, then uh, he can only log in transactions during that time. Obviously, we had some kind of a legacy functionality towards that. Uh, obviously, it didn't work. Uh, people wanted to, uh, business owners wanted to uh, create schedules on the mobile phones or from the convenience of the home. They didn't want to be in the store to create schedules um, in the point of sale. And additionally, a lot of salespeople traveled between the stores. So even though your schedule may be from nine to five, a store may be open for 12, 16 hours at a time. And your first four hours could be in the morning at store A, then you would take a break. And then your next four hours of your eight hour workday would be at the store B in the evening. This is uh, usually popular with uh, high-performance salespeople where they are being thrown into the stores to increase the store performance. So they would be thrown in at the peak times whenever that store experiences a peak time. So this was a pretty interesting and very important problem, a very important ask from the customer. But a company that I worked for realized that we're not in the business of uh, creating software for employee schedules. We're in the business of building point-of-sale software. So... The functionality of scheduling, creating work shifts, and managing employees' schedule was partnered out. I did the research as a product manager. I created a list of recommendations. We interviewed a few companies and eventually uh, picked one, and it was partnered out. We created the third-party integration uh, where schedules and work hours and uh, all of that was kept in a separate system but it was referenced in the transactions, so we always knew who processed the transaction and who earned that commission. Another interesting problem that we uh, ideated and actually did go to uh, early prototype stage was the endless aisle back in 2000, 
2015. It was a really cool idea about Endless Isle where you had a physical store and you wanted to connect it to the online e-commerce store where you can order things online and pick them up at the store, order things at the store and pick them up online. Wherever you are, um, it would create the seamless integration experience. Uh, we prototyped uh, pretty successfully a uh, e-commerce integration between the point of sale and uh, e-commerce uh, e store front end. At some point, we realized that even though we were able to successfully build the prototype, we will not be able to scale this once a lot of customers get on board. So this is this was an interesting problem, and uh, we were glad that we caught it early on. Uh, can we build websites? Can we build e-commerce websites? Absolutely. It's no-brainer. It's a solved problem. We can, uh, we can do that. But scaling it and maintaining it for each individual client with their individual rules, with their individual um, problems, with their individual uh, inventories, and, and creating that inventory integration was somewhat complicated. And again, this was not the business we were in. We're not in the business of building websites. We're in the business of building point-of-sale so that idea actually got spun off into a completely new line of business. We created a separate uh, division within the company uh, where people uh, integrated our point of sale with the online ERP. So that ERP system was not only taking care of e-commerce front end, but tracking, uh, shipping, and a lot of other things that were not in the initial prototype. Uh, it worked out pretty well, it was in, even in the first year when we went from a uh, failed product prototype into a successful line of business. It earned uh, almost a million dollar, uh, almost a million dollars um, for a $15 million company, which is pretty successful uh, line of business in my book, uh, given that the prototype of a product failed. Another uh, interesting thing that happened, actually, from idea to a product was inventory integration with third-party websites. Um, one of the problems that our customers were facing was when they added accessories to their uh, inventory, they had to order those accessories from several websites. Some of those websites are sanctioned, approved by the carrier, so they must buy from those websites, and the rest not so uh, approved, but there's better pricing. So our customers, the store owners, had to juggle, kind of do a balancing act between purchasing from the stores that were sanctioned and purchasing from the stores that didn't really, uh, they weren't sanctioned but had a better pricing. Obviously, when you're a uh, wireless store with a bunch of customers, it's not like you're ordering a couple of covers for one or two phones. You're ordering tens, hundreds, thousands, sometimes tens of thousands items. We're talking about hundreds of SKUs and tens of thousands of items. Obviously, if you don't have an integration with your inventory module, it's a problem to import all this inventory back into your system. How can you sell something if it's not in your inventory? We were able to build an integration module, pretty simple, uh, that would just parse the receipt, parse the purchase order, or parse the invoice, whichever was submitted with a list of purchases, with a list of the accessories and uh, generate a list of products, SKUs, and names, and import them automatically into our point-of-sale system, into the inventory module, therefore removing anywhere from 10 to 20 hours of work per month uh, for almost every customer, uh, completely removing it, replacing it with three, four clicks of a mouse on the specific web page. Uh, 
we gave that product away for free. It became our retention tool. Uh, in other words, yes, you can go and use another system. You can go in, uh, to another point of sale provider, another point of sale vendor. But hey, if you leave us, you won't be able to use this tool. So now you have to hire that person back and have them spend those 15, 20 hours uh, importing manually all these, all these accessories, all this inventory, because you're not using our product anymore. It worked like magic. And at the end of the day, uh, we found uh, an idea that sort of generated in interesting buzz, had that fuzzy warm feeling where we thought, hey, maybe this is an interesting thing. Maybe we should look into this. It was a commission reconciliation. As I mentioned earlier, uh, most of this business sits on top of commissions that carriers are paying business owners for selling phones and activating lines. Usually carrier tells you how much you've, uh, you've earned and you don't really have much of the information to say, hey, maybe you're wrong, maybe you're right, I don't know. Uh, we found a way to reconcile what happens at the store, what actually, which transactions were actually processed at the store versus those that were recognized by the carrier. We figured there's a big discrepancy and our customers may be losing tens and maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars by not seeing these, the, these differences, not seeing these discrepancies, and not disputing them with the carrier. This idea kind of took on, and that's the idea we ran with. As I mentioned, there's a lot of prototyping, and this the prototyping is really magic phase um, during the uh, product development. This is the time when you can uh, ideate and prototype and experiment. Hey, I like this idea. Let me try it. And this is the time when you can fail. And, well, I can't say without repercussions, but the repercussions of failing at the prototyping stage is really, are really minimal. It's product manager's responsibility to decide which ideas are worthy of a prototype. I talked briefly about how we validated some of the ideas early with customers and um, with development team and uh, with the industry itself. But... At the prototype stage, you really need to be asking these questions consistently, constantly, every day as you build your prototypes. Why are we building this prototype? What's the value? What's in it for me as a customer that I'm going to need this? Can we actually build this? And this is this is one of those things where we were unable to build uh, real-time voice, uh, voice sentiment analysis. Uh, can it scale? And this is where we failed with the idea of um, endless aisle and e-commerce integration. Yes, we can build it, but we cannot scale it. Does it work the way it's supposed to work? This is the time when you, pro as you prototype, you start doing internal demos. Uh, as you build these internal demos, as you conduct these internal demos, you need to find believers in your product inside each organization, inside support, inside sales, inside development. Why? Because you're going to need support of those people as you move along, as you move further in your product developing activities. Most importantly, can this product be sold? And this is probably one of those uh, big eye-openers uh, for a product manager, especially uh, if you haven't taken the product to the market uh, from point A to point Z. There are a lot of times when you think this is a great solution for the problem the customer has, but 
at the end of the day, customer says, you know what? I don't want to pay for this. If this was free, I would gladly use it, but I'll save my money for something that's more important. I'm okay with experiencing this mild pain if I can keep my money. And as I mentioned earlier, this is a thin margin market. People are really price conscious. So a lot of products we were not able to sell. For example, the product that we gave away for free, it had huge benefit of uh, being a retention tool. So it had merit. It had um, somewhat um, of, a, of a revenue attached to it in the form of retaining the customers. Uh, but customers, there was pretty, they were pretty loud about this. We don't want to pay for this. We're not going to be paying for this. Even if it would cost a dollar a month, we're not going to pay for this. And as you prototype and as you go through this, you start building a product brief. You start building the actual product uh, documentation that you will enhance and build on top of uh, as you move forward. Your prototypes, as you move forward with them, not very early prototypes, are the most important thing you're going to use to sell to sales. Sales should be your biggest believer if sales does not believe in your product, they're not going to be able to sell it. Even if they try, they will inevitably fail. Sale, your sales organization or your salespeople need to believe in your product the same way you do as a product manager. On top of that, obviously, before you commit resources of development team or the company, you need to prove, you need to show that the product makes financial sense. Sales are the people who will help you make that financial sales. And as you do the demo, as you're having conversation with sales, you need to understand if they can sell this product, if they want to sell this product, do they know what they're selling? Do they know how to sell this product? Uh, they are your apostles. They are your uh, followers, advocates, ambassadors. And this is what happens in, in the real life. As you continuously engage with internal departments, you're doing the demos, you're doing these prototypes, you're having ad hoc conversations, you're recruiting subject matter experts from each department, uh, you're updating them on um, schedules, progress, challenges. Hey, I don't think this is working. Uh, we need to do something else or help me figure out this part. Uh, you need to show progress. You need to show that you're taking that feedback, however bad it is, and you need to show that you're implementing this. And this is what happens in the life of this product that uh, that, that we're looking at. Uh, we had a VP of sales who was extremely negative towards this particular product. His opinion was that we're wasting time, wasting effort, wasting money on a, something hypothetical, you know, um, a pie in the sky where we should be dedicating all the effort into fixing problems with the existing product. What he failed to realize, or maybe he did realize, but... Uh, he didn't really care about it, was that we had a legacy product that it was increasingly more and more expensive to fix problems with that product uh, instead of building a new one. And the new one was in the way, it was too far away, but uh, it didn't really make sense to fix issues, uh, minor, especially minor issues, in the legacy product if we knew that the new one's in the way. And as I had these uh, meetings, either uh, official meetings or one-on-one -on -one conversations with the VP of sales, he went ballistic. He went extremely negative on the product. He started pointing all the inadequacies, all the stupid things, like he called them, uh, in the product. 
I deliberately didn't say anything. I did not react. I just wrote down every single thing he noted. Two days, three days, five days later, I came back and I showed him another prototype that addressed half of those items. He still went uh, all medieval on me and still uh, showed me, hey, this doesn't work. This doesn't make sense. You should get rid of this. A week later, I showed him the next prototype that addressed uh, some of his concerns, uh, major concerns. And as we went through this on and on and on continuously, iteratively, he saw that I'm not only taken aback by this negative feedback, I'm using his uh, him being emotional and, and being passionate about why this product should fail to really uncover flaws in the product design, fix them, and give him uh, a new version, a better version to go on about. Thus, kind of fixing things that he was most upset with. And in about a month and a half, two months timeline, it turned him from being the most vocal critic into most vocal supporters. I was able to demonstrate by iterating and providing, taking his feedback and providing value and providing um, updates fast enough back to him that not only I am listening, I'm acting on what I think is very valuable input from one of the most experienced subject matter experts in the field. As this was happening, I was able to start recruiting other salespeople from his organization into ranks of folks who believed in the product, who wanted to see it succeed. As I started talking to these salespeople, they started slipping out to customers that, hey, we're working on this product. It's going to be really cool. Uh, I, I want to talk to you about it, but later when we have something to show you. And this allowed us to get to talk to subject matter experts from the customers, people who are actually in the field, who are actually experiencing this, uh, these pain points and who actually were able to help us figure out the business process uh, behind this commission reconciliation problem and build the product around that business process. Uh, as we uh, had these ad hoc uh, meetings and conversations with uh, multiple departments, we went from 25 product features to just five. Why? Because we wanted to simplify it. One of the things that I didn't realize was as I was building this product, I became so knowledgeable about this problem. I figured it out to the depths and breadths that not all customers were able to understand. So the product was overcomplicated. Product was not bad. It was just so sophisticated that only I could use it. So we had to simplify it. So even our smallest customers or people without too much time on their hands to learn new things could understand what we're trying to give them and use it within their own business processes. Hey, we're doing this reconciliation. Let's look at this report. Great. We understand everything that it says. Let's take this as an action item and move on. And don't forget, as you work on this product, you're going to have a bunch of other activities. So you need to fit your uh, other activities into this uh, product, uh, product building exercise. Uh, on top of that, you will have these disappointing conversations when somebody like your CEO or customer or customer's representative will ask you, hey, this is great, but can your product do this? And you'll be really puzzled if you just talked about them, hey, this product makes coffee. 
and a customer looks at it and says, says this is amazing, but um, can it also drive me from uh, New York to Boston? And you would look at this like, how does, how does that even connect? And apparently it doesn't, but customers like to ask those things and you need to be prepared uh, for those conversations. Once you build your prototype to the extent of the MVP, it's time to take your product to the market. And taking your product to the market is a great time to do this one activity that I absolutely love. And uh, not everybody understands what it is. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus on this a little bit. Hire your customers. Your customers are already with you. They're already paying you money. They're already interacting with you pretty regularly. Uh, this is more uh, true to uh, B2B segment rather than B2C segment, but this is also possible in the B2C segment as well. Have your customers act as subject matter experts, and they're going to be the most vocal critics. They're going to be the most, um, the best subject matter experts, not because they know better, but because they don't think in terms of, is this product good? They think in terms of, can I use this product in my daily life? How do I apply this product to solve problems I am experiencing today? And customers will help you look at your uh, product from a different angle, from a different point of view. Can I use this in my business process, within my business processes, or can I use it in my daily life? Like I said, product got too sophisticated and too complex for people to use. So can someone operate the product without knowledge and expertise, as much knowledge and expertise as the product manager got as he was building this prototype. Does it truly make their life easier? Or is it just, again, a solution looking for a problem? As you talk to them, and this is what happened with us, uh, we were trying to hire these customers. We had a list of 10, what we call the champion customers. We got about three of them picking up phones and answering our inquiries. Two agreed to help us. One of the customers, after the extensive demo and asking questions, literally laughed in our face and said, you know what, this is crazy idea, this is crazy talk. There's another company that charges $1,000 a ticket, $1,000 a month for doing this. The, I'm, I'm just giving you an approximate pricing point at this time. Uh, they, they're charging $1,000 a month for this and um, they know what they're doing. You guys have no clue. I'm not interested. Don't ever call me again with this crazy idea. And we only ended up with two customers who were um, willing to work with us. We created the cadence. Hey, uh, we're going to let you use this. We're going to give you all the data that we have. Uh, give us an hour, two hours of your time a week or every two weeks so we can walk through your data with you and understand what's happening. And uh, you will provide feedback to us so we can understand if the product makes sense to you. And um, we had these calls, we had about four or five calls uh, as we went through uh, the data with the customer. This is our report, this is how we would look at it. This is your report, tell us what you think, tell us if, the, if this makes sense to you. And as customers started realizing the value, this, as they started to realize that they're getting a lot more value than they thought they would, People talk. People started talking. And, and in this industry, people know each other. And about a month and a half later, uh, I, I have a salesperson approaching me and telling me, hey, remember that guy who we did the demo for and he didn't want to do it? 
I said, yes, of course. He's he's really smart. He asks really uh, smart questions, and I really would love to work with him. So yeah, he wants to he wants to he wants you to show another demo. He wants to see maybe you guys made some progress, and whatever else. And it immediately struck me as somebody talked, somebody shared their feedback about our product, our building our product with him, and now he wants in again. And again, since he's one of our valuable customers, we absolutely let him in. We absolutely said yes. Uh, he was our champion customer number three. Uh, it was a great relationship. He really helped us figure out a couple of issues. And as a part of it, uh, we were able to build trust and build relationships. If at the beginning of this, they had no idea who I am, they never picked up on my phone, never returned my calls, never answered my emails, in a month and a half after doing these uh, demos, they knew my phone number by heart. They called me themselves directly on my cell phone instead of a company number. They would always pick up my calls on the first or second ring. It was absolutely amazing and great relationship that I had with customers because they saw the value that I was providing to them and they were really interested in seeing more and getting more. And they were genuinely, which surprised me, uh, they were genuinely interested in success of this product. Another thing as you're building the MVP, as you're going between the prototype and MVP and the launch stage, is your ability to iterate fast. And the only way this is possible is when you expose your developers directly to customer feedback. It doesn't mean all the developers have to hop on the call with the customer, but you should not shield them from the harsh reality of the feedback. If customer says, hey, this is crap, it's a crap. Your developers know it's a crap. And uh, sometimes it's painful for everyone. Um, sometimes you iterate too fast at this stage and it's also painful to developers. This is how we actually lost one of our developers, one of our first developer that we hired. Uh, we hired outside of the company because our developers within the company didn't have capacity and uh, the prototyping phase is way too fast for them. Uh, I was able to create four, five, seven versions of the prototype within a week. And if, if had I given this job to our developing team, I would only be able to get one. And this, this was not the speed I, I wanted to move with. And one of the first developers, the first developer that we hired for this, um, for, the, for building the prototype, uh, it was too fast for him as well. And he was not happy that we changed things so fast. It was like in the morning, he would give me the, uh, the new release, the new update. I would go around, do the demos. And in the middle of the day, or at the end of the day, I would go back to him and tell him, hey, let's redo everything. Let's rebuild everything and uh, start from the almost from the scratch because this doesn't work. Uh, he was not happy. He quit at some point. Uh, he quit in the spot, said, I can't deal with this anymore. I don't want to do this. And we had to hire somebody else. Now it was a requirement to be able to keep up with us uh, with a fast pace of change. As you work with your champion customers uh, back to hiring them, uh, they help you validate not just the existing prototype, not just the existing MVP, but the way you want to move forward. They help you validate your priorities and features. 
And as you move through validating the existing prototype, they will voice a concern saying, hey, we, as we look at this piece of data, we really want to look at this. And if we're answering these questions, we really cannot make a decision without this piece of, of data. And eventually you build, you build uh, this idea in your head that, hey, I need to know each and all of this together in order for my customer to have a specific answer. As an example, uh, as we started producing these reports, the product-generated reports for our customers, uh, some of the customers were not processing transactions correctly at all. So a lot of fields that were supposed to be populated with the raw data from the transaction were empty or blanks. The system didn't work. Obviously, the product didn't work because there was no data to work with. But what the reports, what the product demonstrated was not that, hey, you're commissions are wrong, but your process, your sales process at the store is wrong. So before you even go and uh, challenge your carrier, before you go and challenge your business partner that you're not paying me correctly, you need to fix a lot of problems in your own stores. You need to fix the problems with your salespeople. Uh, That was was a revelation to them. We, as we were building the product, we kind of expected that. But that was a pretty interesting turn of events for the customer as they said, hey, we didn't know this was a problem, but now they do. Now they understand what's going on. Uh, again, same way it, it worked with our VP of sales when he saw how even the harshest feedback that he provided was immediately taken into action and product was fixed. The same way our customers were seeing that every time they would challenge us or they would say, hey, this is wrong or this doesn't work, in a, in a few days, in a week, in a couple of weeks, they see an update, they will see the change, they'll see that we took their feedback to heart and uh, we addressed it. It created trust, it created this understanding between the customer and the product manager. Um, and one of the things that I love to do for our customers is create magic. It's when you show them, hey, this is the problem, and boom, this is a solution by bypassing the whole you know, how we got their part. Uh, customers don't really care how you solve the problem. As long as you solve a problem for them, they're okay. They don't really need to know. They may be curious, but they don't really need to know how you solve the problem for them. So by showing them, hey, this is your problem. Let's apply this magic potion and boom, there's a solution. They absolutely fascinate and they love you even more. Everybody understands it's a psychological trick. Customers, probably most of all. But they still love it. They still see it as a, hey, he did the magic for us. And they love you for that. Now, with the MVP launch. And everybody knows what the MVP, Minimum Viable Product. In truth, Minimum Viable Product is not what makes products stand on its own. It's what you can sell on the market. It's the minimum set of product capabilities that your clients can tolerate and they will pay money for. As we talked before, this is where full scope of product manager responsibilities kicks in high gear. You need to develop your value proposition. You need to develop your marketing strategy. How are you going to tell your customers that this product is out there, right? You're lucky if you have your marketing department, but in that particular case, we didn't. And I was the person tasked with developing marketing strategy from zero to, to whatever we did in the market. I was the person who created and conducted uh, demos 
for customers, for sales. I developed sales collateral, one-pagers, flyers. Uh, I had some help. I hired some help from the outside, but it was mostly on me to provide all the information, to provide feedback, uh, circulate, and make sure that everybody had what they need, all the tools, all the collateral, all the demos operational so that sales can sell, customer support can answer questions, and everybody can work in unison. I had to work with legal, making sure that we had all the uh, contracts and, and agreements and NDAs in place. I had to work with customer support on training them how to support this product and how to make sure that they know how to answer questions, most popular questions, or how to gather intelligence on what's working for the customer, what's not working for the customer, so they can uh, give it back to me and I can process it and uh, provide them with some kind of feedback, additional training or whatnot. I needed to conduct customer training. It's not the business owner who's gonna be doing this. It's gonna be one of the people in their company. So I need to find that person and train them and understand their process of, on, on this. Uh, what, what is their process of con- reconciling the commissions? And hey, this is how you're gonna use us, our product, to enhance or rebuild or you know, completely rehash or just amend your process, however it applies. I, I, was, I had to establish a customer support organization. Well, we had customer support. I needed to know, have my experts. Uh, everybody can answer generic questions, but I needed to have a few people who could, go, who could dive into details and really get to the nitty-gritty details of what's working for the customer, what's not working for the customer, what's missing, and what needs to be done. As you launch the product, your MVP or whatever else, as you launch the product, there's a lot of things to happen internally. You need to hand over uh, certain parts of your product to the other organizations. Billing and finance, they need to know how to charge, they need to know how to process the contract, how to process subscription, uh, support sales, operations, need to know when we start selling it, so when they can start answering questions, when they can start telling customers about this new product, then you need to measure everything and anything. You need to measure performance. You need to see uh, what happens internally, and I'm talking about internal performance. Uh, Let's say we just launched this new product, five million people signed up, and our support lines are choking because of that. So we should should scale back or we should, either increase our support organization or scale back and only make available make product available to certain markets or certain uh, cohorts of people and that's where a product manager actually gets hands-on with almost every aspect same thing externally as you earn build trust in the relationships you get as may, much feedback as you can from anyone and everyone M- measure what you can measure it's really easy to measure things uh, when you're doing B2C product, you can just throw in analytics and at least that's there. With B2B products, when you're selling piecemeal one by one, it's hard to measure performance or measure or create analytics uh, automatically. Uh, but you still can collect some kind of feedback either through sales or through support. You see the level of tickets being raised for this product. You see number of questions. You see which questions are the top 10 and at least on that level, you can understand where you're at 
uh, right after the launch. You can measure sales performance. If you see a lot of uh, successful sales, that means you hit the spot. If you're seeing a lot of inquiries but not a lot of sales, that means either you're not clear in the value proposition or your sales don't know how to communicate product benefits. So you can go back and adjust, which in essence together makes up the overall product performance. And as we've launched, as we kind of looked back on the whole process, the whole process took us about um, nine months from raw idea when we just started charting first first sketches of this idea on the whiteboard to the moment when we sent out press release, sent out all the email communications, and uh, we had an official launch date, about nine months. Uh, just a couple of lessons that we've learned. The only stable thing in product management is failure. And as a product manager, you will fail at every step of your product building journey. And when you run out of steps to fail, you will find new steps, new ways to fail. And this is probably the most exciting thing because you learn so much from the failures. It, it's a scientific thing, obviously. Um, you learn so 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 much from failures that you won't be able to learn um, as much from success. Simplify everything. As I mentioned earlier, we went from 25 features to five, and we actually got more successful in introducing our prototypes and MVPs to our customers. Customers understood what the product does better and faster. When we had 25 features, customers were all over the place. So does it do this? Does it do that? When we got them to the five feature point, they immediately grasp what the idea of the product is. Oh, it solves this problem. Cool. Let's run with it. Uh, it had to be dumbed down to customer's level, uh, but at the same time, it made customers. Uh, it made easy. It made it easier for customers to understand what the product does, because they don't have all the time in the world listening to you talking about all the features. And guess what? Manuals is better than automation. When we just launched the product, uh, we were sending out, the product was basically generating reports. So instead of giving uh, customers access to the product that was generating reports, we were manually sending these reports to the customers and then calling them with a follow-up call and saying, hey, we emailed you this report Monday. Today's Wednesday. I'm pretty sure you haven't had a chance to look at it. So let me take an hour of your time, two hours of your time, walk you through the report. Let's analyze. Let's see what uh, what's going on. That generated tremendously positive response because not only we were giving them, giving the customers what they wanted, giving the customers uh, the value from the product, we also were proactively teaching them how to use it and how to extract maximum value from that product. That was probably the most important and most valuable part of this conversation. Plus, we got so much feedback by having these phone calls and face-to-faces with customer that we would never got if we just automatically sent out those emails and waited for customers to call us back. That is it for today. Uh, Thank you for listening. Hopefully, this was interesting, and I'm looking forward to creating more content for you. Check out my website, vgrubman.com. My name is Vlad, and this was my first podcast about product management. Thank you. 
You've been listening to the Real World Product Management, and I've been your host, Vlad Grubman. Until the next time. Thank you.